All right, Mark chapter 12, and we're looking at verses 13 to 17 this morning. So let's read that together, and then we'll, we'll dive in. If you are using a pew Bible, um, if you don't have a Bible with you, there's one in the pew in front of you, and you can find this passage on page 848. So Mark chapter 12, verses 13 to 17. And they sent to him, to Jesus, some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why, do you, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. So how about this for Providence. Mark 12, 13 to 17, two days before the midterms. Um, I didn't do that. Uh, not that smart. So before we dive into the passage here and, and study it, let me ask you a question here. How much do you think, how much do you think, wrestle with, ponder, the relationship between your faith and your politics? So we've got two categories, two circles here, right? Caesar's things and God's things. What do you put in each circle? Another question to just get us thinking about how much we think about the relationship between faith and politics. Is the separation of church and state the same thing as the separation of religion and politics? I'll ask that again. Is the separation of church and state the same thing as the separation of religion and politics? Again, food for thought here. A couple of quotes of a book I'll recommend later uh, by Jonathan Lehman. It's called How the Nations Rage. Church and state are distinct God-given institutions and they must remain separate. But every church is political all the way down and all the way through. You're going to have to read the book to find out what he means by that. But. And every government is a deeply religious battleground of gods. No one separates their politics and religion, not the Christian, not the agnostic, not the secular progressive. It's impossible. One more quote. Conversion makes us citizens of Christ's kingdom, places us inside embassies of that kingdom, that's the church, by the way, and puts us to work as ambassadors of heaven's righteousness and justice. Churches are the cities on hills, said Jesus, not America. America is not the city on the hill, at least according to the Bible. That's what the church is supposed to be, all right? So this text this morning is, you know, 
important for all of us to wrestle with. We need to receive it, each of us. But I also hope that it's a prompt for us to wrestle and think more deeply and not just be blown and tossed by the sound bites and the spin and the rhetoric on every side in relation to politics. We as Christians actually need to think more deeply about these things. Wrestle with how do we do this faithfully? So I hope that this message is not only food for our souls on the spot, but also a prompt and an encouragement, especially in the midst of such a contentious age and so many issues flying in the realm of faith and politics to actually like dig in and wrestle with those things. And this book certainly could help um, among other things. All right? So we're walking through the gospel according to Mark. Jesus at this point has entered Jerusalem after predicting his suffering and death and resurrection. He's predicted it multiple times. He's welcomed to Hosanna's, you know, save us, Lord, enters the temple, looks around, and then withdraws. Kind of anticlimactic. Then he comes in the next day. He's upending tables because he hasn't just come to cleanse the temple. He's come to replace it. So the religious leaders are on high alert. They want to dispose of this troublemaker. I mean, who does he think he is? What gives him the authority to do these things? So last week, Chris hit this section. Look at Mark eleven twenty seven. They came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do them? And then at the end of the section, after that parable that Chris unpacked last week um, about the vineyard owner and the, the tenants and all of that, in verse 12, they were seeking to arrest him. The religious leaders are seeking to arrest him, but they feared the people for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. So in our section this morning, what are we gonna see? We're gonna see that Jesus is king, right? The kingdom has come. He's bringing the kingdom. And Jesus determines how we, his disciples, live faithfully in the kingdoms of this earth, and as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Two kingdoms, and they overlap here on earth, right? So three points. First point, the motive in the question, verses 13 to 14, all right? And they, which if you look back at 1127, it was the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. They, those guys, sent to him, to Jesus, some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. Okay, actually the chief priests, scribes, and elders are going to be the framework for the next couple sections because there's like three groups that ask, ask Jesus questions. First in this section, it's the Pharisees and the Herodians, okay? Next week, Lord willing, chapter 12, verses 18 to 27, it's the Sadducees. And then 28 to 44, it's the scribes, or 34, it's the scribes. 44. Um, so here, they send some Pharisees and Herodians to ask this question, to trap him in his talk. And Pharisees and Herodians, that's a really unlikely mix, okay? So they were not typically very friendly, the Pharisees and Herodians. So the Pharisees were like the strict holiness party. They were like all about legal purity. The Herodians were more pragmatic and politically motivated. So usually they would not be friendly, but they unite around a common enemy, which oftentimes happens, doesn't it? 
And their motivation, their aim is clear. They want to trap Jesus like an animal. The last time these two were mentioned together is back in chapter 3, verse 6, after Jesus healed that guy with the shriveled hand on a Sabbath. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against Jesus how to destroy him. So their motive is clear. How are they going to try to do this? How are they going to trap him in his talk so they can destroy him? Verse 14. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? So the Jews at the time under Roman occupation, Caesar was the emperor of Rome. At this time, it's Tiberius. And this tax that's referred to was the imperial poll tax, okay? So the Jews didn't like any of the Roman taxes, but the poll tax was particularly galling for patriotic Jews, okay? It was initiated in 6 AD after Quirinius's census when Judea became a Roman province. And there was an, a, a revolt right away led by a guy named Judas the Galilean. And it was quickly stamped out. Boom. You mess with Rome, you're going to pay. But the zealots, the zealot Jews, certainly held on to the same aspirations of breaking free from the Roman yoke of oppression. In fact, it was the revolt in 66 AD that led to the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple in AD 70. Okay, so this is like the world in which this is coming um, and Jesus is saying these things. So this is a pretty politically charged question. So they ask if it's lawful to pay the tax. It's a good question, right? Legitimate question. The zealots would have said, no way, compromise. The Herodians would say, yes, of course, you know, very diplomatically. The Pharisees kind of likely struck a middle position. They resented the tax. It was humiliating and everything, but they justified paying it. But when they're asking this question, they don't really want to know the answer. They don't want to know the answer for their faith and faithfulness. They're just trying to hang Jesus on the horns of a dilemma. They think they have him either way. Like, either way you answer, we got you. Man, this is a good question. Way to go, guys. They're, they're setting Jesus up here. It was a calculated attempt to either put him out of favor with the people. Okay, the reason they couldn't arrest him is because the people were so impressed with him. So the people were acting like a buffer. So if they could get the people out of favor with him, then boom, they could get him and get rid of him. So if he says, yes, we should pay the tax, the people are going to be like, boo, <laughs> compromiser. They'll get in, he'll get in theological trouble. If he says no, then Rome's not going to be happy. And they're going to bring the hammer down on him because he's being subversive, Right? So either way, plays into their hands. They're not sincere. They start with this syrupy flattery. Well, we know that you're true. You don't. They're praising him to try to get him to drop his guard. They're trying to manipulate him. The irony is what they say is true. They're the hypocrites. So Jesus was true. He wasn't partial. He wasn't swayed by anybody's opinion. He wasn't in anybody's pocket. He taught the way of God truly. He wasn't trying to preserve his popularity. He wasn't trying to galvanize his base. He wasn't trying to protect his power. He was no politician. We should notice this about Jesus. We should admire this about Jesus. We tend to become like what we admire. And 
don't we know that this world doesn't need any more chameleons saying the acceptable thing or perhaps being silent because we fear what people will think of us, you know, so we can avoid the loss of social standing or job opportunity or whatever. If we have our eyes on Jesus, we're going to become more like Jesus. And Jesus had backbone. He wasn't a chameleon. He didn't capitulate. And he had thick skin, not thin skin. And he had a soft heart, not a hard heart. Like, how much do we need that in our world? So again, like we see this admirable backbone of steel in Jesus that's married to a soft heart. Man, make us more like him, Lord. Um, So we see their motivation. We see their question. Now let's look at how Jesus responds. He's got a couple of questions of his own, all right? Point two, counter questions, verses 15 and 16. But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? That's question number one. Bring me a denarius. Let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? Second question he asked. And they said to him, Caesar's. So we know, verse 13, they wanted to trap him. He first asks, why? It's actually a really good question. Why? Why are you doing this? Like if they had any shred of honesty with themselves, they would stop and see that they're just trying to silence this guy rather than actually, you know, he's threatening their power. It's a good question, but they won't slow down enough, be honest with themselves enough to actually face that question. So a little sidebar, if you ever find yourself angry with God or critical of Jesus, you would do well to slow down and ask yourself, why am I doing this? Sometimes you need to ask why a few times to really get at the motivational level. So Jesus asked them for a denarius. This coin represented a day's wage in the first century for a common worker in, in Palestine, okay? So denarius was a silver coin that bore the bust of Tiberius Caesar, okay? So Tiberius Caesar reigned from AD 14 to 37, you can actually buy one on the internet. Prices range from about 600 bucks to about 2,000 bucks. There you go. Um, if you want to see what they look like, they exist still. So on the front, around the edge, is the inscription in Latin that said, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. Because there was an emperor cult. Tiberius's dad was deified. And so what does that make Tiberius? He's son of God. So the reverse side had the image of Tiberius's mother, Livia, and the inscription read Pontifex Maximus. Pontifex, my Latin is, I don't know Latin. So anyway, um, but it means high priest, okay? Or high priestess. Um, So you can see how the necessity of paying this tax with this coin was particularly galling for Jews. So not only is it a reminder that you're under the political thumb of Rome, it's also religiously offensive. So Caesar Augustus considered God, and here's this graven image of his son Tiberius, a son of a god, and I've got to carry this thing around in my pocket and use it to pay a tax. It's like having a little idol in my pocket. So the Jews actually avoided this on a regular basis, I mean, they had, had to do this once a year, 
So on a regular basis, there were copper coins locally minted that didn't have any image on them, and that's what they used because they didn't want to have to deal with these denariuses like this, denarii, whatever. So just, again, we need to get in the first century, feel what was going on there politically and whatever because this is the backdrop. So just to give you a little better feel of what was going on, I recently heard a prominent New Testament historian describe the situation like this. When Jesus was a baby, Emperor Augustus was on the throne. He became emperor after a long time of civil war and strife after the death of his adoptive father, Julius Caesar. As a result, he brought rescue and salvation, so they said, to the whole world by stopping the civil wars and establishing peace and justice. Remember Pax Romana, peace of Rome? They hailed him as Lord, and around the Roman Empire, they started to worship him as a son of, the, as a son of God. And after his death, they said he was divine. Jesus was born into a world where Caesar was the Lord and Savior of the world, bringer of justice and peace, and was God incarnate. In the West, there are all kinds of things, dynamics, factors at work to keep faith and public life apart, separation of church and state, etc. Your beliefs need to be a private thing kept to yourself and not brought into the public square. When you say Jesus is Lord in the ancient world, you mean that Caesar is not. When you say Jesus is Savior, you mean that Caesar is not. If Jesus is Lord and Savior, he redefines what it means to be saved and ruled. When Jesus was a boy, there were riots in northern Palestine because the Romans were imposing a new tax. That's the one I mentioned, the poll tax in 6 AD. What do the Romans do faced with riotous population? They crucify. They crucified hundreds, possibly thousands of young Jews. Jesus grew up under the shadow of the cross. It happened again in AD 70 when the Romans took Jerusalem. They crucified so many people, there weren't enough trees to go around. A world in which the cross meant, we run this world, we are in charge. If you get in our way, this is what we do to you. But by the late 40s AD, people were writing poems celebrating the fact that the cross not only... um, was a hideous weapon of Roman brutality, but was the ultimate symbol of the previously unimagined loving God giving his life as a ransom for many. So Christianity is a revolution replacing the love of power with the power of God's love. That's pretty helpful. Historical background. Okay, so Jesus has asked his counter questions. Now he's going to answer their original question. Should we pay the tax or not? So point number three, whose is this? Verse 17. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. So this is actually a masterful response. Like to escape the horns of this dilemma is pretty impressive. Again, Jesus can't be cornered in debate. They marvel at him. We should marvel at his wisdom here. But we also need to make sure that we ponder and understand his answer. So that denarius was made by Caesar, had Caesar's image and inscription on it. Actually, in Rome, all the coinage was owned ultimately by Rome, by Caesar. So Jesus says, give it back to him. But then he said, render to God the things that are God. So by answering this way, he makes clear that the either or that they set up to set him up 
It's actually a false dilemma. Should we pay the taxes or not? Should we be loyal to Caesar or, or to God? No, you actually can be subject to the governing authorities and ultimately be subject in all things to God. Yes, of course there's a thing called civil disobedience. And the Bible provides some wisdom for when we may be in that situation. But the baseline and the norm for citizens of the kingdom of heaven is here. Citizens should be, or I'm sorry, Christians should be the best of citizens. Give to Caesar that which is Caesar's. So there's this um, letter to Diognetus that was probably written somewhere between 1 and 200 AD. And listen to what was written about the Christians in the early church. Christians are not distinguished from the rest of humanity by country, language, or custom. For nowhere do they live in cities of their own, nor do they speak some unusual dialect, nor do they practice any, an eccentric way of life. But while they live in both Greek and barbarian cities, each one, as each one's lot was cast, and they follow the local customs and dress and food and other aspects of life, at the same time, they demonstrate the remarkable and admittedly unusual character of their own citizenship. They live in their own countries, but only as non-residents. They participate in everything as citizens and endure everything as foreigners. Every foreign country is their fatherland and every fatherland is foreign. They marry like everyone else and have children, but they do not expose their offspring to kill them. That was common, sadly, at the time that unwanted infants were just left out and exposed to, to, so that they would die. They share their food, but not their wives. They are in the flesh, but they do not live according to the flesh. They live on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They obey the established laws. Indeed, in their private lives, they transcend the laws. They love everyone, and by everyone they are persecuted. They are unknown, yet they are condemned. They are put to death, yet they are brought to life. They are poor, yet they make many rich. They are in need of everything, yet they abound in everything. They are dishonored, yet they are glorified in their dishonor. They are slandered, yet they are vindicated. They are cursed, yet they bless. They are insulted, yet they offer respect. When they do good, they are punished as evildoers. When they are punished, they rejoice as though brought to life. By the Jews, they are assaulted as foreigners, and by the Greeks, they are persecuted. Yet those who hate them are unable to give a reason for their hostility so many texts that this kind of indirectly references. We don't even have time to connect all those dots, but maybe you heard echoes of different texts in First Peter and elsewhere. So may we, citizens of the kingdom of heaven, disciples of Jesus, be known like this. I mean, do you remember Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, to the Jews I became as a Jew to win the Jews? Like, wait, Paul, what are you talking about? Uh, hello? It's like the big E on the I chart. You are a Jew. He's in Christ. His identity is, in Christ is so central that, in a sense, he's free from any other. And so he's flexible. He can become like a Jew in order to win the Jews. It's not compromise. It's like contextualizing 
his primary identity, who he is, is I am in Christ. I'm a Christian. So may we be known like this. Or if you turn it around and turn these kinds of thoughts into challenges or exhortations, in Jonathan Lehman's book, he asked some good questions under, under the heading, we need to learn to be before we do. We need to live this out in the church and then it expands out into the community and culture. So he says this, you who call for immigration reform, do you practice hospitality with visitors to your church who are ethnically or nationally different from you? You who vote for family values, do you honor your parents and love your spouse self-sacrificially? You who speak against abortion, do you also embrace and assist the single mothers in your church? Do you encourage adoption? Do you prioritize your own children over financial comfort? You who talk about welfare reform, do you give to the needy in your congregation? You who proclaim that all lives matter, do all your friends look like you? You who fight for traditional marriage, do you love your wife, cherishing her as you would your own body and washing her with the water of the word? You who are concerned about the economy and the job market, do you obey your boss with a sincere heart, not as a people pleaser, but as you would obey Christ? You who care about corporate tax rates, do you treat your employees fairly? Do you threaten them, forgetting that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him? So it starts in here. So especially in this contentious age, we dare not mute or ignore or, yeah, but. The texts, the commands of God that speak to our role as citizens of whatever nation we live in. Okay, so Romans 13, 1 Timothy 2, 1 Peter 2, Titus 3, 1, we won't look at that one. We should never yeah, but them. I mean, that's sometimes what, what happens. Romans 13 reference, yeah, but sweep that away. We really, we need to be careful. Like we need to sit under these texts and wrestle with what they mean in our day and age because these are not, you know, suggestions. So let's read them here. Remind ourselves of what it means to give to Caesar what is Caesar's and then we'll move on to what it means to give to God what is God's. Let every person, this is Romans 13, let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. Skipping down to verse five. Therefore one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. 1 Peter 2.13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. So, again, I encourage you to put these texts down. Think about them more. 
as far as what does the application look like? Let me just tease out a few thoughts. Should we join the media and social mob mocking and spewing hate and crass jokes? Should we spread that around? No. So, so honor everyone, love the brother, fear God, honor the emperor. I think that has governance over retweeting and reposting. Can we level criticism? Absolutely. But we should do so thoughtfully with substance. Just to join in the hateful rhetoric misrepresents Jesus. We, ben and I were watching something yesterday. I think maybe it was the game. I don't know. There was a game last night, wasn't there? Sorry. Um, you know, there's all these political ads, right? I mean, isn't it just, we've been dealing with this for a while, right? But like, nobody cares about truth or integrity or dignity anymore. The goal is just to win. And maybe that's an overstatement, <laughs> not, not by much. But we don't need to like stoop to swim in that cesspool. So Jesus is the one that needs to tell us how we understand our faith and politics. Um, we won't take the time to look at 1 Timothy 2, but again, it's a command to pray. I think that's convicting. I don't pray for our governing officials like I should. Maybe you need to be reminded of that as well. Are we aiming, 1 Timothy 2, at a, leading a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way? So render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and let's humbly, honestly wrestle with what that means. And I think this book could help if you're maybe grab a couple of folks and read through it, discuss it. It's called How the Nations Rage, Rethinking Faith and Politics in a Divided Age. Okay, um, let's hustle along here. Um, so remember Jesus' question of the Pharisees and the Herodians. Whose likeness and inscription is this? That word likeness is icon in Greek, right? We get our word icon from it. Guess where that word shows up the first time? Genesis 1. Then God said, let, God, let, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. So see this coin? It belongs to Caesar. It's got his image on it. Give it back to him. Pay your poll tax. But render to God the things that are God's. See this human? That's God's image. All of who we are and all that we have and all that we do belongs to God. So the text that flow right out of this would be not Romans 13, but Romans 12. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. Don't be conformed to this world like all of who you are belongs to him. Or 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Your body belongs to God. Your time belongs to God. Mine does too. Your money belongs to God. Your talents, your love, your compassion, your hands, your feet. Take my life, that song that we sung. Our wills, our voices, our food, our houses, everything, it all belongs to God. Render to God the things that are God's. So we are indeed citizens of earthly nations and kingdoms. But much more than that, we are subjects of the king of kings. He's given us life and breath and everything. We owe everything to him. We are not our own. 
That's true twice over. By creation, every heartbeat is from him. Every bit of air that you breathe belongs to him. Everything, everything, everything from him and through him and to him, all things. And then as new creatures to our redeemer, our lives are not our own. We've been bought with a price. So we've got to be good citizens wherever we live, but our ultimate allegiance and primary citizenship and allegiance is not of this world, citizens of heaven. Wholehearted worship and allegiance, giving our whole selves to God, loving him with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength, loving our neighbor as ourselves, including our enemies, including those who hold different political views than ourselves. We owe him all. He's worthy of it all. And is that heavy and oppressive? That he owns us and like every nook and cranny of life belongs to him. Everything that we are and have belongs to him. Is that like, oh. No. <laughs> like, you, you could look at it this way. What has the government done for you? And I know you're gonna be like, huh. That's the first reaction, right? Well, listen, tell that to a citizen of North Korea or Afghanistan, okay? Like relative safety, healthcare and medicine, roads and bridges, you know, like we don't have to, there's all kinds of stuff that we're blessed by compared to other countries. So it's fitting that we pay our taxes, right? What has God done for you? What has God done for you? You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were running the other way. You were a lackey of Satan. You're just like the walking dead. That's you and me, all of us. And he tracked you down in your rebellion and sin and laid hold of you by mercy and grace, sheer mercy and grace, and made you alive together with Christ and saved you by his grace and has blessed you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And he is for you and not against you. He is with you even to the end of the age. And you're gonna be with him forever, fullness of joy forever. And all the way along, all the very great and precious promises are yours. He's your good shepherd. With him as your shepherd, you shall not want. Like I'm just scratching the surface. So this isn't like, oh, I've got to, like, everything. No, he's actually laid hold of us and made us his own, not to oppress us, but to set us free. He redeemed us from slavery to sin and set us free to remake us into the image of his son so that we can get back to being really human, loving God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength, loving our neighbor as ourself now and forever. So, as we prepare for the table, in the words of Psalm 116, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? Do I need to set up like an amortization schedule and like try to pay this thing back? Psalm 116, the next verse says, I will take up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits for me? Take up the cup of salvation and say, more please, more grace, more help, more strength so that I can 
run the race that's set before me with my eyes fixed on Jesus, run it with endurance, with faithfulness, so I can be a good citizen in heaven and on earth. I can't pay it back. All to him I owe, right? Like, I can't pay, it's not a self-atonement plan. Jesus paid it all. We owed an infinite debt. We can't pay it off. We just give thanks and we praise him and then we say, I need more grace that will abound to your glory and then in your strength, I can serve you, serve others who really need your love and strength and help and encouragement and wisdom as I follow Jesus. So we come to the table and isn't that what we're doing? So for any of you who have recognized your spiritual debt that you cannot pay and you have trusted in Christ, you go public with that faith through baptism, right? Like, I was dead in my sins. I am alive together with Christ, not by anything in me, but because of his grace. And then the table is an ongoing reminder of all that is ours in Christ. All these resources and we lift up the cup of salvation. We deserve the cup of wrath. Jesus drank that for us. It's finished. So we have the cup of salvation. We lift it up and we say, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, as we eat and drink. And we say, I need more grace today so that I can be a faithful citizen in heaven and on earth this week. So let's do that together. Let's prepare our hearts and then we're gonna participate in the table. If you're not a Christian, like if you're still wrestling with what you believe about Jesus, just let the elements pass as they're distributed. Um, men, if you're ready, if you could come on up, we'll, we'll get ready to pass this out in just a minute. Um, but if you're not a Christian, let the elements pass, that's okay. Um, but don't let this moment pass of considering the fact that you owe everything to God and you can't pay. Realize your need and look to Jesus and see that he paid it all so that you could have God. You could have it all. Um, so let's pray and then we're gonna distribute. Just wait till everyone is served and then we'll um, participate together. What shall we render, O oh God, for all your benefits? You have blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ and we love to proclaim your death until you come, Lord Jesus, because it is the fountainhead of all of the blessings that we enjoy. Forgiveness of sin, cleansing from unrighteousness, peace and reconciliation with you. All your very great and precious promises. So Lord, help us to examine our hearts where there's sin that's gotten in the way. If there are things that we've been holding back from you rather than giving to you, yielded wholeheartedly. Would you expose that? Help us to repent and receive your grace in fresh ways. Lord, feed us on your grace now. In Jesus' name, amen.